0: As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you, that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant, servant Zilpah, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the work "'Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years.' Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years.' When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing.
1: Well, church, I thought I would start this morning by giving you a nugget of wisdom from a person and a voice that probably all of us just unreservedly trust. So uh, let's read this nugget together, okay? And if this clicker will work. I had Termit the Frog for you this morning, and he has up there, what goes around comes around. Right? You ever heard that expression? I mean, have you ever seen it happen in somebody's life and you thought, yeah, what goes around comes around. And That's a concept. Uh, you know, in, in our culture today, a lot of times that's, that's aligned with karma. But karma is a, is a pagan concept that essentially denies the sovereignty of God. But that concept of what goes around comes around is actually, it is found in the scriptures. It is known as the law of reciprocity or the law of the harvest. So in Galatians six, Paul says, whatever a person plants, that's what he harvests. Jesus is kind of referring to this when he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so it is tempting with that in mind to come to the episode, this episode in the life of Jacob and use it as a living illustration of this concept that what goes around comes around. we have to ask the question, is this how the original audience would have interpreted it? In other words, did God give this story to the nation of Israel as they stand on the banks of the Jordan River prepared to enter and conquer the promised land? Is he giving them a story that's really one big cautionary tale of what not to do with our lives? I would suggest to you that he's doing something much more in this passage. It's much more than a cautionary tale. At the very least, there are two important gospel applications that, are, that we are supposed to get here this morning. First of all, we are supposed to see in this story that the Bible is not meant to be read as a book of virtues or a religious instruction manual right? There is a boatload of sin in these verses. I mean, think about the last time we saw Jacob. He was at Bethel. He had this incredible vision from God where the stairway to heaven was in place and the angels are ascending and descending. And, you know, he sees and interacts with God himself and uh, jesus applies this in john 1 as we studied to himself that we do not have access to god by climbing upstairs and working and doing instead he says in john chapter 1 and essentially he is that stairway to heaven the way we have access to god is through jesus and through his shed blood and a relationship with him well roughly 30 days later Jacob comes to the land of his extended family. Remember, he's fleeing for his life from Esau, his brother who he's defrauded, who wants to murder him. And so his parents send him back to the ancestral area of Haran, which is in like modern day Syria in that area. And and we have a scene here that's actually meant to be contrasted with an earlier chapter, an earlier episode that we saw back in Genesis chapter 24. In that chapter, Abraham sent his right-hand man, Eleazar, back to this same area of Haran to the extended family to find a wife for his son, Isaac. And he he comes to this well, Eleazar does, and he goes through all of these series of events where God reveals to him that Rebekah is to be Isaac's wife, Rebekah, who is the mother of Jacob. So it's an incredible story of, of God's sovereign grace and a servant of God humbly beseeching him. What you see in that story is Eleazar praying and seeking guidance from God and his will. From beginning to end, he is actively prostrate before God, praying, inquiring of God. And so then Jacob, you know, many years later, comes back to this same area. When we get to heaven, I hope we can find out, was it the same well? I kind of got an idea that, you know, in God's cosmic sense of humor, he's brought him back to the exact same well. And even though he has just had this incredible vision from God at Bethel, it's evident that Jacob's sanctification and you know, maturation into a man of God, this is a long haul project because when he comes to this well, it's very different. The first 12 verses we didn't read, I'm gonna summarize them, but you can see in those 12 verses that Jacob takes a directly opposite approach to Eleazar. And instead of bathing everything in prayer and walking with God, he does it very differently. And it tells us much about who Jacob was. He gets to the well and he sees some shepherds there lounging around, two or three of these guys with their sheep, and he begins to talk to them and he finds out from them that he has now entered into the area of his family, his extended family. He asks them about Laban and says, sure, we know Laban. In fact, here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep right now. And from that point on, several interesting things happened that help us understand better who Jacob was. The first thing that you see in these first 12 verses that is that he has not left his scheming ways behind him. As you read these, that, those verses, what he you, you had this bizarre scene. Now imagine this, Jacob is the stranger. He walks up to these men, he talks to them and then he begins to essentially berate them and order them. He says, what, you, know, you guys don't need to have these sheep. You guys need to leave and take your sheep back to the pasture. It's not time to water them yet. You know, now, now you look at daddy and you think that one of two things, either Jacob is a really arrogant jerk who's, you know, way beyond, you know, writing checks that his body can't cash, right? Or he's up to something. And I would suggest that he's up to something. They say, hey, here's Rachel. As Rachel gets closer, I think, you know, he, he doesn't want these guys around, you know, You know, those of you who had younger siblings, you remember when you might had somebody you wanted to talk to, the last thing you wanted was your little brother or sister around, butting their heads into things, right? You wanted alone time with that person. And so Jacob, I think he's scheming here. Another thing that you see is that Jacob is actually a very strong, bold, hardworking man in these first verses, the, at that well, there's a massive stone. The custom of the day was they would cover the well with a very heavy slab of rock to keep the dust and the dirt from filling the well back up. It typically took two to three men to move that well that, that rock. Rachel gets up there and and Jacob says, "You're my let me help you with this let me help and he's you know boom, and he's moving this rock He, he does it all by himself, right. And he's very bold. Now, yeah, we looked earlier. We said, hey, he's kind of a mama's boy. That doesn't mean he's a wimp. Doesn't mean he was a wallflower, right? He, he loved to be around his mama. And his, and his mama, you know, he was the apple of his mama's eye. But this guy was no shrinking violet. He's a bold, hard-working man. And you know this because over the next 30 days, while he's there at Laban's home, he pitches in and he works. And Laban sees this guy's a keeper. I'm gonna put him on my payroll because... I want to make money off this guy. And so they enter into this negotiation to essentially, you know, what ends up being indentured servanthood for Jacob for almost 20 years. He's also clearly a passionate man. I mean, guys, if ever there was a story in the Bible of love at first sight, this is love at first sight, okay? He sees Rachel and he is smitten by her, and this love for her is real and it is very deep. His love and devotion to her is something that shapes and influences the remaining decades of his life even after he dies, even on his deathbed when he's giving his final blessing, he hearkens back and says things about Rachel to his children. Now that's, that's admirable in one respect, but on the other side of the coin, his passion for her ends up being the source of a lot of sin. A lot of strife in this story and future stories. He will completely disregard Leah. When Rachel enacts a plan like Sarah did for Abraham, he will obey his wife when she tells him to go and sleep with other women. He will favor uh, Joseph and Benjamin who are the children of Rachel over all of the children who are older than them and, and in such a way that it actually Uh, spring loads, the tragic events that we will see in Joseph's life. And all of this happens because of the favoritism that Jacob has for those boys because they were the children of Rachel. He's clearly a very passionate man, but one could argue that his passions led to deeper idolatries. Another thing that you see in this passage is that he's a proud man who trusts in himself and in his wisdom rather than God. What's striking in this passage and in its succeeding chapters over this entire 20, what's going to end up being a 20-year time frame in Jacob's life, not once in that entire 20-year period of time where he's in servitude to Laban, does he turn to God and pray and submit his desires, his issues, his problems, his plans to God for God's input, for God's guidance, and for God's wisdom. The differences between Jacob and Eleazar who are both coming to the same area for the same purpose to get a bride, the difference in those two men's approach on their mission is striking. Eleazar is a man of faith and prayer who humbles himself before God. Jacob is not, and the consequences are costly. Now, as we look at this story, we have to pause for a moment and admit that it is a difficult story. There are things in this story that we shouldn't be comfortable with, that we should cringe at. In fact, we live in an age where people actually, you know, discount and disregard the Bible because of stories like this one. I mean, think about it for a moment. The women in this story are nothing more than property to be used and traded by a greedy abusive deceptive horrible father the way that both laban and leah or excuse me but both laban and jacob treat leah it's deplorable It's deplorable. Don't don't miss the agony in her soul that's expressed in the, the final verses of this text. In Genesis 29, verse 31, we read, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Let's stop right there for a moment before we read on. Can you imagine what life was like for Leah in this marriage? For Jacob... She is a walking, talking, breathing, living illustration of, his being che- of him being cheated by his father-in-law, Laban. She is forced upon him. He is forced to marry a woman he doesn't love. A woman who is apparently, you know, she has weak eyes. What does that mean? I mean, he maybe she was kind of homely. It's certainly in comparison to Rachel, who is this glamorous, beautiful sister. And then there's Leah. And now she's sharing a tent with this beautiful, glamorous sister who Jacob deeply, desperately loves. And she's been inserted into this relationship you know, against Jacob's will. How do you think she's gonna be treated, right? The next chapter Chapter 30 definitely reveals what this home is like. It is filled with pain and agony and anger and strife and resentments and sin. It's everywhere. By any standard, Leah is an abused woman and you hear her agony In these verses, as she names her son, she says in verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son. Okay, I'll do it. There we go. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Verse 34, again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Church, there's a word play going on in this passage that doesn't come through in our English. In the original language, each of these names of these sons sounds like a key word in those verses. So for example, the word uh, Reuben sounds much like like the word affliction and the name Simeon sounds much like the word hated and the word Levi sounds very similar to the word attached in other words what she's saying here is something that gives us insight into the pain the horror that she's experiencing as a wife she says now that I've given him a son with Reuben the first maybe now he'll love me and then after a while, the second son, well, now that I've given him a second son, maybe now he won't what? Hate me. Do you hear that? And then the third one is, well, now that I've given him a third son, maybe now he'll just be kind to me and accept me into the family. This, this is this woman's experience. It's heartbreaking. Stories like this are heartbreaking in the Bible. And we've already seen this with, remember Abraham and Sarah? And what they do with Hagar, what Sarah does to Hagar is abominable. She forces him into Abraham's bed. She's her slave and forces her to have a child with Abraham. That child, Ishmael, now becomes Sarah's property. Hagar and Ishmael are Sarah's property, and she treats them like property. She beats them, and ultimately, at her insistence, they are cast out of the family. So you have that kind of story. You have Lot in the incest with his daughters. You have this happening with Jacob, and you can just work your way through the Scriptures. You're going to see Judah commit a horrible uh, sexual crime, and then Moses murders a man, and David. I mean, we can just go on and on and on and on, right? The Bible's filled with stories like this, and so as a result... Non-believers in our world today, especially, and more and more so, they come to these stories and in their sophistication and their education, and they, they read them, and they reject the Bible, you're going to hear it in How am I ever going to worship a God where the heroes of that book are people who have slaves and who rape and murder and participate in genocide and do all of these evil things? Why would I ever want to follow the example of these people and be involved in a religion that looks at these people and honors them? You've got to be out of your mind. You know, I, I understand that sentiment. And you better be prepared, you're going to hear this more and more and more as our culture becomes more and more postmodern and non-Christian. But these kind of comments simply reveal a basic misunderstanding of the Bible. The Bible is not meant to be read as a book of virtues. It's not meant to be read as a religious instruction manual that tells you, copy this person, emulate this person, do what that person did so that you can earn your right into heaven and your righteousness from God. The Bible is not a morality tale. We're not gonna read it as a book of virtues. The Bible is God's gospel. It is God's good news to sinful humanity. Church, the biblical heroes of the faith, by and large, what you see overwhelming in the scriptures is that they are moral and spiritual failures. These stories are not given to us so that we would idolize them. They are to show us humanity's sinfulness, humanity's need for a savior and for the grace of God. They are meant to show us stories where we can see ourselves in these characters. I see myself in Jacob, I see myself in David, I see myself in my sinfulness in these men and women of God and that's why they're there as as Tim Keller writes, The Bible, it's a record of God's intervening grace into the lives of people who don't deserve it, who don't seek it, who continually resist it, and who don't even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. These stories are meant to show each and every one of us our desperate plight, our true condition, that before God, we are no better than the worst of the worst of the stories contained in the Bible. So when we read the Bible, don't read it as a book of virtues or a a religious instructional manual, read it for what it is. It's the good news that in the scriptures, in the Bible, God is announcing who he is, who we are, and what he's done to save us from the desperate condition we find ourselves in due to our sin. That's what the Bible is about. And coming to it in any way other than that is gonna lead you astray. So our first gospel application is that the Bible is not meant to be read as a book of virtues or a religious instruction manual. The last application, I believe, is I think the most important aspect of this story and perhaps even the main point of that story. And that is this, God's plans and promises are not stymied by humanity's sin. The Israelites on the bank of that Jordan River, they had undergone the wilderness wandering due to the sins of their parents. They now stand on the banks of the Jordan River and I think they probably needed a story like this. You can't help but think that they're wondering, they're wondering in their minds did the sin of their parents end up canceling out all of God's promises about the promised land and what he was gonna do through them? You know, and and they need to have they need this reassurance. They need a reassurance that the sin of their parents didn't ruin God's plans and His promises for what He was going to do through them. For that matter, think about the four hundred years of slavery when they were in Egypt. Here they are; they're enslaved. They are they are used and abused in the most horrible ways. They are murdered. A genocide is carried out within them, and yet this story helps tell them that all of that horror that they experienced, God was working through that sin and that horror and all that is occurring in order to fulfill his covenant promises and bring about his plan of redemption for their lives. We shouldn't miss this. The easy thing for us to do is come to this passage and say what goes around comes around. The easy thing for us to do is to kind of enjoy this passage and I I will confess I kind of take a little bit of smug satisfaction at the, the poetic justice that happens in this story, right? Uh, I mean, think about it. Esau was at a desperate time and a desperate condition. And so Jacob cuts a deal with him that ends up defrauding Esau and hurting him and his life. And now in this story, you find Jacob in a desperate condition and he meets Laban and Laban cuts a deal with him that makes Jacob's life much worse than Esau's life ever was, right? And if you go even back further than that, think about how all of this happened because Jacob wanted Isaac's blessing. And Isaac is dying. He's an old man. He's blind. His life is lived in darkness. And so if you go back to that passage, It tells you, and we looked at it, that Jacob filled him with wine and then he dresses up like Esau and he deceives him in order to get the blessing. And what do you see in this story here? After seven years of labor, which by the way, is twice as long as what he should have worked, You know, the the bride price. In that day, the groom would pay a price for the bride. The money was left with the father essentially in trust so that if anything happened to the husband, the bride would go back to the father's house and there'd be money to take care of the bride. The bride price at that time was about 30 to 40 shekels, which for a shepherd was around three years, three and a half years of work. How many years does Jacob work? Seven. Now, the moral of this story is never get into a, contract negotiation with anybody whose name is Laban, okay? Because he paid twice as much, All right? But here it is. He's finished his seven years. It's time for the wedding. He, he has to go back and he has to argue with Laban. And Laban finally honors his word. Yep, when marriage is here, we're going to throw a huge party. And what doesn't come through in the text, but is the reality is what he actually throws is a huge drinking party, All Right? The wedding is here, the wedding night, huge drinking party. Later on in the night, Jacob is dismissed to the marriage tent. It's dark, they don't have lights and electricity. And you know that if you wonder ever wonder, how could he be confused between Rachel and Leah, right? Well, like Isaac, he's been filled with wine, it's dark, and he brings her in with the veil so he can't see. He disguises her much like you know Jacob disguised himself. And so what does he end up with, Leah? I mean, you can't help but laugh at that some, to some extent, right? I mean, Jacob the deceiver meets someone, Laban, who is an uber deceiver, right? In in light of, of, of Laban, Jacob's a rank amateur in the skill of lying and deception and sin when it comes to Laban. And so, yeah, you're tempted. We're tempted to take pleasure in Jacob's comeuppance. But to do that, we would then ignore that Laban's sin against Jacob is really beyond the pale. In the next chapter, Leah and Rachel will complain and accused their father of defrauding them and cheating them and treating them like a product that's meant to be traded, that's simply used to make money. This is a horrible story of sin and deception by Laban against Jacob and Leah and Rachel. So it's easy for us to want to see this being a cautionary tale, poetic justice at play, what comes around goes around, but that's not what we're supposed to see. What we're supposed to see is how God is working even through the sinful actions of Laban and Jacob. It's through these 20 years of servitude to Laban that Jacob begins to learn that leadership in the Bible and the leadership of a patriarch is servant leadership. It's through these 20 years of trial and tribulation and all this entailed in it that Jacob begins to be humbled. It's through this time, even though he doesn't know it, that God is actually carrying out the promises he made to him at Bethel. Those promises to bless him and prosper him. He's gonna leave a wealthy man. The promises to give him descendants that are as numerous as the dust of the earth. And most importantly, the promise that God gives to him that he will move even through all of this sin to ensure that from Jacob the promised seed will ultimately come. And the way God does that in this story, is, I think it's the most beautiful thing. You know, all of this story is essentially the bad news of the gospel. It's the last, it's, it's verse 35 that's the good news that points us to the good news of the gospel. Remember a few minutes ago, I, I read that list of names of Leah's first children and how heartbreaking that is as it revealed what was going on in her life. And it also revealed something about Leah. Like so many of us, Leah was looking to her, her home, to her marriage, to her children for a sense of significance and identity and purpose. She was looking to her home to provide for her and Jacob to provide things for her that only God can provide. For us. She's like a lot of us who do the same thing. Like so many of us, we turn good things into ultimate idolatrous things. And then we come to verse 35. And this is why verse 35 is so important. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time, if you have your Bible, you might want to underline those words, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah Judah and praise sound much alike. And in the Bible says, God then closed up her womb. For a long time now, she doesn't have children. What happens here? God was at work in Leah's life. And with child number four, she finally discovers her rest. She finally discovers what she needs rather than trusting in Jacob and a marriage and children and home to give her what only God can give her. She's now focused on God. She's praising God, even in the midst of what is an incredibly difficult situation where she's been sinned against. And God gives her Judah. And this is is important because with God giving her Judah, he ensures that the promised seed will not come through the beautiful, desired, much-loved Rachel. Instead, the promised seed comes through Leah, the despised wife who is sinned against so egregiously. For in the years to come from Judah will ultimately come David and then Solomon and a thousand years later, Jesus, the promised seed. Both Laban and Jacob had all kinds of attitudes and plans which were sinful and abusive towards Leah. Yet God's plans were not stymied by their sin. He worked through their sin to carry out his will and his promises for Jacob and for his covenant people. He worked through those lies and deception and abuse for his glory. And church, we need to hear that this morning. Humanity's sin will never stymie God's plans and promises. The ultimate example of this is in Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching that first sermon into the audience who shouted at Jesus that he be crucified. And in that sermon, he tells them, Your sin of killing Jesus is within the plan of God. You are doing what God had planned to have happen. Isn't that amazing? He says in Acts 2. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Church, I know some of us need to hear that this, this, this morning. We need to hear this truth and this point of this passage. Some of us, like Leah, have been abused and defrauded and wounded by the sins of other people. Others of us have wounds that are self-inflicted through our own sinful decisions and actions. These these wounds and this pain that comes into our life, regardless if it's inflicted by others or self-inflicted, it oftentimes Creates a situation where for years and years and years we live as Christians not enjoying the the peace of God and the joy of our salvation. But this morning, be assured. Be assured of something. God is not going to let the sin against you from other people define you. He's not going to let their actions against you thwart his plan for your life. Be assured that his plan for you, his promises to you, his intention to redeem your your sin and heal the wounds of all that has occurred in your life, that plan will not be stymied. It will not be stopped. He will accomplish this in your life. He promises this. Now, I know it's easy to say that, and some of you, you might be skeptical of it because you've been living with this pain. Some of you have been living with this pain since childhood, some of you are in the midst of trials right now that I know about, and, and they break my heart as I think about what you're going through. And it's horrible. Some of these occasions, I really want to get worldly and, you know, uncork a can of whooping and things like that, you know? And it's painful, and you've lived with this for so long. You've asked God to intervene. You've asked God why he doesn't intervene. Why he didn't protect you from the sin that has brought this devastation into your life. Why he would allow something to happen in your life that has so clearly affected you maybe for years and years and you come to him and you ask why, why, where were you? How could you let this happen? It's natural to ask that, to be confused, to wonder but would you take it from somebody who learned the hard way? You have to be very careful with that because it is very easy to allow those honest questions to devolve. Your questioning of God leads you into a darker place, to a place at some level where you begin to blame God. You begin to believe that it was God who wounded you and sinned against you. You begin to believe that at some level, he's responsible for what has happened to you. He's to blame and he shouldn't have done it. And for some reason, he chose to not protect you from the pain that you're enduring. I heard a story from a woman once who knew she was about to be molested by a family member. She said, I remember... Lying there in bed and hearing those steps coming down the hall. And I began to pray to God, God, please don't let this happen. Please don't let this happen. And God let it. God didn't do it. He didn't stop it. So it's easy to understand why someone who's experienced those types of things would be confused and wondering. Wondering, how can this happen to me? It's easy to understand how this can kick off a downward spiral in someone's life. Calls into question what we believe about God, his character. Mike Wilkerson in his book, Redemption, touches on this topic about those of us who maybe find ourselves there this morning to help explain what you're going through. He writes this, he says, it just hurts too much to draw closer to the one who could stop evil, but hasn't. So we keep a safe distance. We may hold on to orthodox ideas about him, but our hearts disconnect, our affection cools. We just don't trust him. I read that and I was like, Jerry Clem. It was me for so many years. And then he goes on to write, he says, the problem isn't that God has abandoned us to the pain and consequences of sin. The problem for many Christians is the refusal to face that pain with God at our side. That's the issue. And he points us to Jesus. Jesus. Now, you think about Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. We see him there. He cries out to God to intervene in the evil, to rescue him from the pain of what he knows he's about to experience on the cross. And yet, his heavenly father refused. He refused to deliver him. He refused to save him. He allowed those men to sin against him and wound him and destroy him and kill him, and torture him. And yet what you see in God in Jesus is that He does not withdraw from God. He actually moves in closer to his heavenly Father. He begins to pray more intimately more fervently, more desperately, and at the deepest point of his despair is when you see Jesus using that most intimate of terms, Abba, Father. Like our daddy, at his worst time, rather than running from God, curling up and developing a hard shell, he's more vulnerable, more intimate, pressing in closer to the heavenly Father. So this morning, church, if you're carrying the wounds and the pain and the confusion that comes from sin from the, or from the trials and maybe from the trials and tribulations of life, if you're crying out to God and not yet experiencing the restoration and the comfort and relief that you desire, please don't turn from him. Instead, run to Jesus that stairway to heaven, the one through whom we can have access to the Heavenly Father at any time of the day, run to Him. Allow your pain and your confusion to draw you closer to your Heavenly Father. And for your own sake, do this so that it does not drive you farther away from the source, the one source that can give you the comfort and the strength and the healing. That you need Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. I pray, Lord, for those who are here as I look across the, the audience, and I see people in different stages of, of pain and difficult situations. Many of these, these people, Lord Jesus, are, are they didn't do anything. From a human perspective, they've not done anything to, to deserve this kind of pain, yet people have sinned against them, things have happened in their life, and they are hurting. And so, Lord, as their pastor, I love these men and women, but I know that you love them even more. And so I ask some, one simple thing for their sake this morning, Father. Would you give them the eyes that can see Jesus so that they can draw close to you? May you give them a heart filled with faith that trusts in you, a heart that is filled with hope that only you can give? And would you work through the sin that has brought that kind of pain in their life? Would you redeem it for their good and for your glory? In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.